Well, it's very nice to be back here after some weeks of travel down in the desert in Joshua Tree, um, and also having been the last few days uh, in the city with the Dalai Lama. How many people went to see the, the Dalai Lama? Oh, you lucky folks, yes, that's great. And anybody who was on the retreats in Yucca Valley? A few. Oh, good. Hmm. Being around uh, the Dalai Lama, and I think tonight, um, as you sit and listen, what I'd like to do is some reflections on being with the Dalai Lama and the retreats that just ended, and hopefully there'll be some teachings that are of use to you out of it all. Sit sit comfortably and you'll see. Being around the Dalai Lama um, is always uh, really a treat. Um, And here in San Francisco, in this particular visit, um, several days, two days of teachings and then some public talks, I don't know how many people, there was three or 4,000 people at least there. And it felt like a gathering of folks coming from all over who were devoted to the inner life and devoted to transformation of the heart and the awakening of compassion in some fashion or other. Um, And I knew a lot of people. It was great kind of walking around. It was a kind of a big, um, very friendly Mahasanga community feeling. Um, And part of what was interesting in seeing the people that I did is that there were a lot of people that I'd known for 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years who had been practicing in various fashions. And one of the questions that it seems that brings us together, whether at gatherings like that or coming here to Spirit Rock, is a question of how to find and manifest or awaken wisdom in such an uncertain world, how to live with wisdom. And the uncertain world is described by the Buddha in one fashion when he speaks of the worldly winds of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute and you could put in joy and sorrow and birth and death and all of the changes that happen to us over and over and over again. Praise and blame are like the waves of life and pleasure and pain and gain and loss. So how do we find uh, a place of wisdom in this changing circumstance of the world? In one of the dialogues, the Buddha says, speaking to someone who's asked that question, he says, you must first see the way things are. It seems, he goes on, that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. And though we thought ourselves settled, we are not. And although we thought we would last forever, we will not. So that's pretty strong medicine. (laughs) It happens to be true. It's nevertheless quite strong medicine. So what do we do with this circumstance of praise and blame and gain and loss? and joy and sorrow, 
and the tentativeness of life. How do we live wisely? Make your mind, says the Buddha, like the great ocean within which waves can arise and pass on the surface, but in the depths of the ocean there is a stillness. Or make your mind vast like the sky, says the Buddha, spacious and open so clouds and weather and storms and rainbows can appear and disappear and rest in the vastness of the sky that is unchanged, untouched, unmoved by the appearance of these weather systems and clouds and various things that come through. The sky remains. And these are kind of poetic metaphors in one way, but in another they're actually instructions. They're practices to make the mind like the ocean or the sky. And we can do this practice. Um, And it has a great benefit. It's said in the Buddhist texts or teachings that the abode of the Buddhas or the abode of all who are awakened, the word is vihara, which means the dwelling place of the awakened ones, is it's called Mahasati, which is translated most simply as the great abode of mindfulness. Um, and there's a kind of invitation that the Buddha offered to people. He said, my friends, there's a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of wisdom and compassion and realize freedom in your own heart and mind. And this is the establishment or the abode of mindfulness. Mindfulness means lots of translations. Presence, wakefulness, awareness, openness. It's the space of awareness that knows the experience that we have as a human being, that knows the experience without being caught by it. And so we come here and we do a little sitting in meditation before we start. Perhaps you've sat for a long time over years or perhaps you're newer to meditation. It doesn't really matter. When you sit, you get the same basic experience. You get body sensations, pleasant and unpleasant ones. You get a stream of emotions and feelings. You get thoughts and perceptions that come which is to say you have the river of experience that is our human life. Mindfulness is the quality of presence that knows what is here. And with mindfulness, mindfulness that knows or is cognizant, it sees the way things are, but more than that, it sees with respect. Whatever arises is met with a a kind of respect, almost as if it's a bow of respect. Oh, this too is part of the human experience, whatever it happens to be. People will come up at times and talk about their meditation or their experience and say, I'm having this experience and I really don't want to be having it. You know, that kind. (laughs) But it happens that that's part of the human experience. So there you have it. Or I'm having this experience and I really want to keep it. You know about that one too, right? So mindfulness sees, oh yes, this is what's present with respect. 
It also has a quality of kindness. You could say mindfulness is a kind attention. It meets experience with a kind of graciousness. And it doesn't identify with the things, which means to say it doesn't take them so personally. It doesn't grasp, I want more of this, and I hate that, and I don't want that, and this is good, and that's bad. There's a kind of balance, and not, not taking the whole thing so personally when we rest in the space of awareness. Now, being around the Dalai Lama, which I have had the fortune of being in many circumstances over, over the last 30 years and more, you feel this quality of the abode of spaciousness and compassion, the qualities of respect and mindfulness, so much so the quality of respect. When he was, I've heard different people introduce him, Bob Thurman, who's a good friend, gave this long, long introduction, 20 or 30 minutes of all the glorious things about the Dalai Lama. And the poor Dalai Lama afterward had to say, oh, I am, not, that's too much. I'm just, you know, Buddhist monk, you know, because it, it's like when you build somebody up like that, it doesn't feel right in some way. So he had to kind of undo that. Um, Richard Blum, who introduced the Dalai Lama in the city this time and other times, who's head of the American Himalayan Foundation, but also, um, and a developer, also married to Senator Dianne Feinstein, and a very long-time friend of the Dalai Lama's, um, made his introduction really short. He said, I've heard him say this before, he says, this is one of the finest human beings I've ever met in my life. I introduce you to the Dalai Lama. And it's so simple and sweet. So you're around the Dalai Lama, or at least I am, and this sense of, mindfulness, in particularly the quality of respect, comes through. He comes in and he bows to everybody, you know, and kind of looks around. And When he went to Thailand, monks aren't supposed to bow in Thailand. Monks are considered in that culture, and in Burma too, kind of the, the, the highest level of society. Even the king will go and bow to the, to the newest monk, um, even though everybody treats the king with this great um, reverence. The king bows to all the monks. But the Dalai Lama went to Bangkok and to Thailand, and he bowed to everybody. It was really, you know... And at first, it kind of shook up the order there a little bit. Wait a second, this monk is bowing. But he does it with such big smile and such love and such graciousness. So he bows to everybody. He shakes hands with everybody. He listens in a kind of remarkable way. And what's beautiful, if, if the Dalai Lama does, you know, greet you or shake your hand and so forth is that he's not in a hurry. One of the great experiences is, you know, there'll be these lines of people and he'll go down and, you know, thank people or say hello or meet them. And you're there with him and he looks in your eyes and he takes your hand and then you think, okay, this is really cool. This is the Dalai Lama and this is really like how lovely. And then instead of like moving on to the next person to get it done, he lingers. He says, you okay? You know, you well? Nice to see you, you know? And he takes as long as it takes to really make this beautiful heart connection. And then when it's done, he moves on to the next person. And that's the quality of respect. It's not just doing it, but it's doing it somehow, being present with one's whole being. He looked well, but older. And I've known the Dalai Lama for more than 30 years, you know, when I was younger. And he was too. And now he's 72, you know. He looked well, but I could feel also the, the aging, 
for himself, for me. And he remained this kind of gracious self that I've always seen. Um, at one point he asked, how many people in the room are Chinese? All these different hands went up. And then he talked about how important it was for him over all these years to try to build a bridge of understanding and of reconciliation between the Tibetan people and the Chinese people. It's 50, 60 years he's been working at this and he still has great hope for it. And thanked everybody. And he can be so um, feelingful. Um, I was the moderator of a, of a conference with the Dalai Lama and people coming out of prison projects around the country a couple of years ago in New York. And we brought people from prisons all over who had been doing meditation practice and really transformed their life and met with the Dalai Lama, which was a very special meeting. He listened to everyone's stories and very much wanted to try to help, uh, as he does in everything. And then one woman said um, she had been in prison um, for... uh, She was given a life sentence for killing her husband. Um, She wasn't well-educated, and he was terribly abusive. And at some point, she snapped and she killed him. Um, And she got into prison, and she learned to read and write and educated herself and started to work with the other women. And she was so good at working with the women that the governor commuted her sentence and let her out. And she now does prison work um, from the outside. And she said, you know, Your Holiness, I I just want to tell you that in the prison where I work, more than 90% of the women who are in there have been abused or raped before they committed any crime. You just need to know really how they got there. And he listened to her and he just began to weep. He said, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. What can I do, he said. So here's this kind of graciousness about the Dalai Lama and respect that somehow transforms people just by its presence. And he gave these beautiful teachings, but honestly, I think he could have read the phone book, you know, <laughs> and laughed the way he does. He has this wonderful, wonderful, deep laugh. And people would have been happy. It doesn't matter. Let's see. Aronson, Abramson, you know. It wouldn't have mattered. But what he did instead was to give these profound teachings in praise of dependent origination, some of the most profound of Buddhist teachings, and the essence of it in one sentence, so you don't have to study too hard tonight, goes like this. If this, then that. If not this, then not that. This is the way the world works. It works by cause and effect. And there are conditions that create the way things will happen. And if we understand this, then the world doesn't seem chaotic and crazy and unmanageable. But actually, if this, then that is understood, when, when if this, then that is understood, then our lives can be transformed. So let me read you a story that illustrates if this, then that. It's an old Hasid story. And it concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th century and then the rise of secularism, all the branch houses were lost and it was decimated and all that was left was five old monks in a decaying mother house. Clearly it was a dying order. 
Now, in the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was also a little hut that the local rabbi would come to occasionally for a hermitage. And when he came, the monks would whisper, oh, the rabbi's in the woods. They could tell somehow. And the abbot, thinking about the imminent death of the monastery and his order, decided at one point, maybe I should go talk to the rabbi. So the rabbi welcomed him in his little hut. And when he explained his purpose, the rabbi said, with great kind of uh, sympathy, I know how it is. The spirit has been lost from people in modern times. It's the same in my community. Almost no one comes to the synagogue or the temple anymore. And so the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together and made some prayers and embraced each other. Well, this is how it is these days. Spirit has gone out and it's all materialistic. And he said, well, it's a wonderful thing we should meet after all these years, knowing that we've been so close to one another. Is there nothing you can tell us, monks, by way of advice, said the abbot. No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give to an order that's dying out. Perhaps the only thing I could tell you is that I have some mysterious feeling that the Messiah is among you. That's all he said. (laughs) So the abbot went back to the monastery and the monks gathered and said, well, what did the old rabbi said? He said he couldn't help us. We wept together and did our prayers. But he said this strange thing when he left. It's kind of cryptic. He said he had some mysterious feeling that the Messiah was among us. I don't know what that means. Now, in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any significance to these words. Could he mean that one of us monks in the monastery is the Messiah? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? If he meant anyone, it's probably Father Abbot. He's been our leader for a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Every one knows that he's a man of light. Certainly he couldn't have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back at it, Elred is virtually always right. (laughs) Often right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he does have a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Could it be that Philip's the Messiah? Of course the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did. Suppose it is I who's the Messiah. Oh dear God, not me. Could I do that? And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them (laughs) might be the Messiah. And on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, It so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn and wander the paths and go to the little chapel in the trees. And as they did, without being aware of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old men and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. 
there was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. And hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to bring friends, to show them this special place. And their friends brought friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he might join them, and then another and another. And so within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And all thanks to the one word of the rabbi, a center of light in the midst of the dark forest. So this is one of the qualities of mindfulness. And you can hear it in the story and you can feel it around the Dalai Lama. It's a quality of meeting experience with respect, to see with respect the measure of pain that we've been given, the measure of pleasure and beauty in our life, the stingy mind, the generous mind, the ignorant and deluded parts of ourselves, the hateful parts. Come on, you know. You know, or spiteful parts, the loving parts, the wise parts. And mindfulness allows us to be present, to go, ah, yes, this too, this too, without resisting or grasping, to actually see this is the play of our humanity. This is the life we've been given. Now, the Dalai Lama, in giving these teachings on dependent origination, because he's also trained as a Geshe, which is a PhD in Tibetan philosophy, and he loves it, he's really a philosopher, he didn't just talk about respect, but he wanted to talk, or non-grasping, but he wanted to talk about emptiness and the contingency of all things, the middle way from the Madhyamaka middle way teachings. And he said it's not the Abhidhamma teachings which say that there are like these little atoms of experience and it's not the Yogacharans and the Jitamatra that say that it's all made of mind. When you come really closely to experience from the Madhyamaka teachings, you discover that whatever you say, this is what it is, isn't what it is. (laughs) Nothing can be fixed. Nothing can be held. Everything, because of this, that arises. Because of that, the next thing arises. And everything in itself is transforming. And the real liberation comes from not clinging to a single thing or a philosophy or a view, even this one. That's sort of the short version. (laughs) And what it means in practice, I mean, there's all these wonderful and sophisticated teachings, what it means in practice is not being a fundamentalist. And you could be a fundamentalist in anything. You could be a fundamentalist capitalist or a fundamentalist socialist, a fundamentalist Republican or a fundamentalist Democrat. You know, a fundamentalist Buddhist, God spare you, you know, or your friends and family, actually, to be more accurate about it. A fundamentalist vegetarian, you know, a fundamentalist anything. It means actually living in this world with respect for the diversity and the complexity and the irony and the metaphor and the multiple levels of life that is our humanity. And with this presence living in the present moment, not in the way that it's supposed to be, but in the reality of the present. And this is mindfulness, to actually live and see the person that we meet, 
not just with our memory and history and what they did and what they said and so forth, but who this person is now. To hold their hand the way the Dalai Lama does and say, oh, here we are in this amazing moment to meet our own experience in this way. And there's an aliveness and a presence and a beauty to this quality. And when we experience this way, the world becomes alive around us. William Butler Yeats says, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And when we are in ourselves, which is another word for being mindful, when we are really present to the way things are without judging and grasping and trying to control and resist, when we're truly present, we allow the gift of someone else to be themselves as well. Our presence and authenticity allows that in another. You know, the Dalai Lama went on, he said, you can't control much. I'm sure you've noticed that, right? I mean, he said there are billions of other humans and billions upon billions of other sentient beings. And then he used this old Tibetan saying, you know, which is a famous one in India too, if you're worried about, you know, sharp stones and difficult things piercing your feet, you can either cover the entire world with leather so that it will be comfortable, or you can wear shoes, right? (laughs) And in some way... There are billions and billions of humans and other sentient beings. You can either try to change them or you could do something a little simpler and change only one person. You know who, right? And that will allow your encounter with the billions of other sentient beings, no matter what those circumstances, to be transformed. People ask the Dalai Lama different questions, you know. What happens if you've got a really difficult person in your life or a really difficult situation? You know, he laughed, of course, because he has a lot of that in his life at times. And he talked about the usual things you'd expect. Patience, compassion, understanding from the other person's point of view. Transforming difficulty into the place of awakening. It is the difficulties of life that make compassion grow. If we take it that way, they are the fire that brings the jewel of compassion to the heart, going through the difficulties. I mean, think about it. When have you learned the most, grown the most, developed the most? Has it been the easiest times? I mean, they have something to teach and they're fine too, but really. So this is a little tiny one, a little poem. My neighbor's musical instrument of choice is the door. (laughs) At first, I thought it was a major nuisance slamming. And then, I saw it was really part of a kind of percussion sonata, (laughs) and the aggravation dissolved. Now I observe how skillful this soloist is in his entrance and exit. (laughs) So that's a little tiny one, right? But there it is. Somebody does whatever they do, they're doing their thing, and you can either make it into an aggravation or you can say, oh, like John Cage, oh, 
this is a strange kind of music. How interesting. Now, I don't mean to be too glib about this. I'll kind of take it to another octave. This year, down in Joshua Tree in the desert, where we've been holding retreats for 30 years in this vast, beautiful desert down there, we use a, a retreat center called the Institute for Mental Physics that was founded by a guy named Edwin J. Dingle, an Englishman, who walked to Tibet in the 1890s and got these teachings from these Tibetan lamas and eventually found his way to Los Angeles in the 1920s and started his own little religion, basically, which, like the Theosophists, which had a lot of these Tibetan elements and some mystical Christian ones, and then got Frank Lloyd Wright to design some of the buildings. So it's this kind of unusual and wonderful place out in the desert. A whole lot of people come each year for a retreat. This year was the coldest, windiest year in 30 years. The desert can be balmy and gracious, but this year, for some reason, it was um, the weather was really difficult. You know, it'd be out and it'd be windy and blowing and very cold, and then it rained and hailed, and you know, it was. It was and what happened for people on this retreat of nine days? It was a kind of an initiation. They went through it, and it was difficult. And in the end, there was, by going through the difficulties with mindfulness, with attention, with practice, there was this beautiful transformation. And anybody who's been on retreat, probably half of you or more have been, know that the first few days are often difficult. You sit, and there's all the tension you carry in your body, and you're trying to sit quietly, and you're restless, and your shoulders hurt, and you know all the places that you've been carrying ache, and so there's all that, or else you're exhausted, you know, and you sit there quietly, and your body falls asleep for like three days in a row <laughs> because you've been running it around, and finally it says, remember me, you know, it's time to rest. So your body does all this stuff that's not necessarily very comfortable. And then the heart starts to open and all the stuff you haven't had time to tend, the unfinished business, the grief, the losses that you carry, you know, the longings. There you are sitting quiet, minding your own business, and the heart says, okay, here we are. Let me tell you what's actually going on in here. And so you've got all that. And then you have your worries and your anxiety and the mind just gets lost in thought. I mean, seriously lost in thought. <laughs> can happen for, for minutes and hours and days, such a long time. Two gentlemen of unsteady and tipsy, two da- gentlemen, unsteady and tipsy, waited impatiently at the bus terminal late at night, long after the buses had ceased to ply their route. A couple of hours passed before they realized in their drunkenness that the last bus had gone. Seeing several buses parked at the depot, they decided to borrow one and drive themselves home. To their disappointment, they couldn't find the bus they wanted. Can you believe it, said one, a hundred buses and not a single number 36 in the whole lot. (laughs) Never mind, said the other. Let's take a 22 up to its last stop and walk the last two miles home. And it's really how it is when people sit in meditation. I mean, the mind has no pride, and you're sitting there feeling your breath, and it will create worlds of problems for you, and stories and adventures, you know, and reruns. And when the reruns come, they come again and again and again, the reruns are kind of knocking and saying, pay attention to me. The reason they keep coming back is because there's something that wants to be felt, 
something that wants to be accepted, this loss or this love or this longing or this fear wants to be acknowledged. It's not thinking and figuring it out. All those thoughts keep coming to say, feel me, sense me, know what's true. So there are all these people and the winds are howling a bit and you know they're in the medit- this big meditation hall returning to their breath and the space of awareness. And over and over coming back, sitting and walking in meditation. And little by little, the sense of ease and the sense of steadiness or equanimity, the sense of calm, sense of wisdom starts to grow in people in a, a kind heart through practice. Dalai Lama says, me, I'm a bit of a lazy monk, he says. But even so, with practice, it has helped now when great difficulties come. And so for these people on retreat, the difficulties came and it was their meditation practice to be with the difficulties, their body tension, their loss, their grief, their fears, their thoughts, all the things and the weather and so forth. And to find a kind of space to say, yes, with respect, this too. And to not take it all too seriously. You know, sometimes we sit with great sorrow. And then sometimes there's a different movie that comes on. It might be a romantic comedy. It might be uh, a documentary about your childhood, you know. It might be X-rated. Those come on once in a while for some people. I mean, you don't even get to choose the dramas that come. And some of them are really, really painful. And some of them aren't. And then there's this great wind across the desert. The wind will blow it all away, the poet says. So at the end of the retreat, I asked how many of you would come back, even though it was harsh this year and not so easy. And what was interesting, almost every hand went up. You know, that it, the, the transformation of staying with the practice of presence, of respect, of trusting the space of awareness is so liberating inwardly um, that the external things don't matter so much. So people would sit and they would sense the arising and passing of praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and sense the emptiness of it all. Poem from Mary Oliver. She writes, For years and years I struggled just to love my life. You know that one, don't you? For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And I find this to be a quite remarkable poem because it has both these sides, the sides of loving one's life, which is so important and a struggle for many of us, and at the same time not holding it too tight. Does that make sense to you? That, that both of these are true. And over the days of the retreat, as people were sitting and getting still and open, open-hearted, and being mindful of the dance of things that arose and passed, then especially the newer people would ask this question, this, this very important question, letting go, how will I live? Just sitting, letting go, is that enough? What about my children? 
You know, what about my responsibilities to the world? And so the Dalai Lama in his talk the other night, um, the other afternoon yesterday in these days, um, spoke about what in Buddhism is called the two truths, the universal and the personal. The universal and personal. Here's my teacher Ajahn Chah's words about it. He said, you should know both the universal and the personal, the realm of forms and the freedom not to cling to them. The forms of the world have their place, but in another way there's nothing here. To be free, we need to respect both of these truths. In the simplest language, we are spiritual beings incarnated into human form. We need to remember our zip code and social security number as well as our true nature, our Buddha nature. You need both of those somehow. And any teaching that denies our spiritual nature doesn't really allow us to fulfill our potential of who we are. But to be complete, any spiritual teaching that doesn't also honor the particulars of our human incarnation in this body, in this society, on the earth at this time, is also missing the boat somehow. Uh, Rilke, the poet, puts it this way. He said, This life that faces both ways, it faces both toward the eternal, I mean, it's short, and it's impermanent, it's true. And things don't last, and we can't possess them. And when they're gone, they're really gone. Where's your childhood? It's gone. I mean, yeah, you could cling to it inwardly some, but I hope not too much anyway. It's gone. Things are gone. So this life that faces both ways, and yet here we are. So the second quality of mindfulness that I would speak about tonight comes from this beautiful Zen phrase that says, there are only, in Zen there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So the world is really the garden. You quiet your mind, you sit, you learn to be present for the experiences, for the joys and the grief, the beauty and the loss that make up human life in an honorable way. And then once the mind is quiet, when we see clearly, there arises a natural compassion. It's like two breaths. The first breath quiets us, and then the second says, ah, here we are together. And compassion comes when we become still or quiet because we see immediately and truly that we are interdependent, that we are completely connected. The Dalai Lama talked about how you are born out of your mother's womb. He said, no robots yet, I don't think, out here, huh? Everybody was born after their months in their mother's body and womb. And as, as little children, we wouldn't have survived if others hadn't fed and taken care of us. Our life from the very, very first is completely intertwined with other life. It is the way that it is on this earth. And out of this, and in, in this way, 
we are all brothers and sisters. I mean, we are. Our, originally, we were all Africans, and that's where we started. That's your, your real relatives when you look back for your ancestors. Kalu Rinpoche, wonderful old Tibetan Lama, teacher of the Dalai Lama, said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not remember this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That's all. There is a reality. When you understand this, you will see you are nothing. That the sense of separation is really not true in the deepest way. And being nothing, you are everything. Or my teacher, Nisargadat, who put it in a similar language, he said, wisdom says that I am nothing, sees that I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. And when the mind gets quiet and the heart starts to open, we realize it's just us. It's not them, you know, but it's family. It's, it's us together in this beautiful way. So the Dalai Lama, when he gets up every morning, takes these vows from Shantideva, his bodhisattva vows. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge to cross the water. May I be a lamp for those in darkness. May I be a bed for those who need rest, a wishing jewel, a vase of plenty, the supreme remedy. May I be a medicine for all those who are ill. Like the great earth and the other elements enduring as the sky, may I be the ground of life for every being, their sustenance and nourishment until all together we pass beyond the bounds of sorrow or suffering. Kind of the poetic Shantideva version of the Bodhisattva vows. Now that's a pretty serious vow to take every day. May I offer myself for the sake of all sentient beings. But when the mind gets quiet and the heart opens... Well, really, what else is there to do with this life? You can either be selfish, you know, which is okay for a while, but it gets old, actually. It's pretty lonely, and it's tough, and it's not very happy. Or you can love, which is what people are looking for, both to be loved and to love, whether you call it compassion or respect or love. And it's so obvious. Dalai Lama said he was in Jordan, and I guess in Israel and Palestine, and he said, you know... Everybody has suffered so much there. The Palestinian people, the Israeli people, so many people in the Middle East have suffered so much. And they now are beginning to see, he said, I hope, it seems like people are beginning to see that violence isn't the way. That violence against the other is not going to solve the problems. It's endless. It's an illusion to think that hatred ends by hatred and that violence ends by violence. And if we look in the world at the continuing warfare and injustice and racism and so forth, it's all based on illusion. It's based on ignorance. It's based on the, the illusion of the other, as if that other was really different. And when the mind quiets and we see with the eyes of wisdom, the heart opens, 
It's so obvious, as the Dalai Lama said, that, that violence isn't the solution. It just can't work. He wanted to go to Iraq before the Iraq War and walk through the streets of Baghdad before the war started to try to stop it. And he said, but then I thought, Dalai Lama, maybe no one will listen. He said this, and then he thought, he said, I, I'm so, he would have liked to have gotten Nelson Mandela and Václav Havel and uh, Rigoberto Mengshu and a number of the other Nobel Peace laureates to go with him. He said, maybe if we all went to hold hands through Baghdad, maybe that would have helped to keep the war from happening. He said, next time, I try that. <laughs> but it's not very complicated. Compassion, respect, even for the enemy. So here's another story for you. Those of you who came a few weeks ago, we had a wonderful Lama visit named Minja Rinpoche. Remember him? The people who are here. Beautiful young Tibetan Lama. Um, very articulate and sweet. Anyway, in his book, he writes a story about a uh, Tibetan couple who had just gotten married, and the bride moved into her husband's home. Immediately, she started having conflict with her stepmother, or excuse me, with her mother-in-law, over a number of issues. The mother-in-law wanted things to be this way, and this is how the household should be run. And I think the whole mother, set of mother-in-law stories are particularly, um, I mean, we have them in our culture, but that, but that they're, they're particularly difficult and poignant in some ways, in the cultures where you are pretty much bound to go into the house of the man you marry in, in those cultures and in a certain way serve your husband's mother. So this is one of that. I mean, that, I mean that's, the, that's the truth of that particular cultural dynamic. It's, it's the way that it's happened. Um, so you can imagine there are a lot of stories about that. Um, and this is a, 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 a traditional story about it. So there... They're in their struggle, which is not, you know, is painful and not uncommon. And gradually their disagreements escalated until the new bride and her mother-in-law couldn't even stand to look at each other, and yet they were living under the same roof. The bride saw her mother-in-law as an interfering old witch, while the mother-in-law thought her son's young bride was an arrogant child with no respect for her elders. There was no real reason for it to get as bad as it did. But eventually the bride became so angry that she decided she had to do something to get the mother-in-law out of the way. So she went to a doctor and asked for poison that she couldn't put in her mother-in-law's food. I'm telling you, this is serious stuff. <laughs> After hearing the young bride's complaint, the Tibetan doctor agreed to sell her some poison. But, he warned, if I were to give you something strong that worked immediately, everyone would point their fingers at you and say, you poisoned your mother-in-law. And they'd also find out that you bought the poison from me, and that wouldn't be good for either of us. So I'm going to give you a gentle poison that will take effect very gradually, so she won't die right away. He also instructed her that while she administered the poison, she should treat her mother-in-law very, very nicely. Serve every meal with a smile, he said. Tell her you hope she enjoys the food. Ask her if there's anything else you might bring her. Be very humble and sweet, and that way no one will suspect what you're doing. <laughs> the bride agreed and carried the poison back home with her. 
And that very evening, she started adding the poison to her mother-in-law's food and very politely offered the meal to her. And after a few days of being treated so respectfully, the mother-in-law began to look at her daughter-in-law a little bit differently. Maybe she's not quite so arrogant as I thought. Maybe I was a little bit wrong about her. And day by day and little by little, she started treating her daughter-in-law more agreeably complimenting her on the cooking, on the way she managed the household, even exchanging tidbits of stories. As the old woman's attitude and behavior changed, of course, so did the girls. And after a few weeks, she started thinking, maybe my mother-in-law isn't as bad as I thought. In fact, she's being pretty nice now. And this continued for a month or two until the two women actually started to become friendly. They started getting along so well that at a certain point the girl stopped poisoning her mother-in-law's food. (laughs) Then she started to worry because she realized she already put so much poison in every meal that her mother-in-law would likely die and soon. So she went back to the doctor and told him, I made a mistake. My mother-in-law is actually a nicer person than I thought. I shouldn't have poisoned her. Please help me out and give me an antidote to the poison I gave her. The doctor sat very quietly for a moment after listening to the girl. I'm very sorry, he told her. I can't help you now. There's no antidote. On hearing that, the girl became terribly upset, started to weep, swearing she was going to kill herself. Why would you want to kill yourself, my, my daughter, the doctor asked. And the girl answered, because I've poisoned someone who turns out to be a nice person and now she's going to die, so I should take my own life to punish myself for the terrible thing I've done. Again, the doctor sat quietly for a moment, and then he started to chuckle. How can you laugh about this, she shouted. Because there's really no need for you to worry, he replied. There's no antidote to the poison because I never gave you any poison to begin with. All I gave you was a harmless herb. And so now go home and live as you might well together. That's the end of the story. This mother-in-law story from Tibet. But what you can hear from it is echoed by Thomas Merton, where he wrote, Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. And as you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And so it's not through violence, or it's not through hatred, or it's not through the making of the other, that our life is happy or that the world is healed. And it doesn't matter how long it takes, the quality of presence and respect and spaciousness of heart is that which begins to transform the circumstances. Now, down in Yucca Valley, in addition to the first nine-day retreat that uh, I taught, there was a second retreat for a week, with which is our dedicated practitioner program. And every couple of years, a group of 100 or so people come together, most of whom have practiced for 5 or 10 or 15 years. Um, and it's another mandala, another group, like around the Dalai Lama, of people who have practiced for a long time and are quite devoted and 
we do a combination of meditations and studies and a lot of practices and experiential ways of bringing the texts and studies alive. And it was their last retreat. And so I gave a bit of teaching for them. And I told them a story about a friend of mine named Father Theophane. Father Theophane was a Trappist monk who lived in the big Trappist monastery near our center in Massachusetts. And he was a very tall, gaunt-looking man wearing these white and black kind of penguin robes. And he looked with these bulging eyes. He looked like he just walked out of 40 days of the desert near Jerusalem. And, you know, this, this wonderful kind of mystic visage. And Anyway, he came and he sat a three-month retreat with us back in the 1970s um, because he wanted to learn Buddhist practice. And he had all these questions, how do you do this and how does this fit with that? And he was really, really interested and curious. And he came many times to practice. And then I didn't see him for a while. And we invited him to come back to talk at the end of one of our three-month retreats, particularly to the lapsed Catholics in the group. There was a hundred people who'd sat for three months. And there were people who were trying to figure out how to, you know, make some sense of their Catholic or Christian upbringing after doing Buddhist practice. And Theophane came in and he was beautiful. He spoke to them about how um, there were a lot of really terrible things that had happened in the name of Christianity and in the church. But for him, it was like, you know, he said it was like an old mother and she may have rheumatism and the house is falling down and she may not have even treated some of her children well, but she's still my mother, he said, so I still love her anyway. And talked about the things that he'd gotten and he said, you know, you don't have to take the whole thing, but here are the things that I think are precious. It was beautiful. But what was most important is as I listened to Theophane speak, he had gone from being a seeker 10 or more years, 15 years before, somebody who wanted to learn practices and wanted to understand how the mind worked and wanted to do all these meditations. He'd gone from being a seeker to one who knows. He was teaching from a place of wisdom, care, centeredness in himself, not trying to convince anything, anyone of anything, just expressing the love that he had found and saying, you too can find this. And I said to the people who were on this last retreat of their dedicated practitioner training, I said, this is really what I want for you. I want you to graduate like Theophane. Um, And to graduate means to shift from being somebody who's looking for the answers and trying to figure it all out, you know, as you might do as a beginning meditator or a beginning practitioner, which is also quite natural. I want you to shift and discover that what you are seeking is who you are and that the answers that you've sought are really your own true nature and that when you quiet the mind and open the heart, when you begin to trust mindfulness itself, trust the space of awareness, and you see all the changing conditions of life, of praise and blame and gain and loss, and rest in the space of awareness which is the unconditioned, not caught in these changing conditions, not identified with it, then you begin to trust your own freedom and your own compassion wherever you are. Anicca dukkha anatta, impermanence and suffering and selflessness are 
kind of fundamental Buddhist teachings. But Wes Nisker puts it this way. He says, life's tough, it will put you through changes, but don't take it personally, right? (laughs) And what I wanted for them was that in a society that's materialistic and individualistic, where we're all these individuals, to remember that it's not what we own and it's not who we take ourselves to be that matters, but it's the state of our heart. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama a question in these question period. What did you feel like when you were first told that you were the Dalai Lama? As if he could remember back. Maybe he probably does from age four or whatever he said. And he said, mm, this question is not important what I feel. He said, because I'm the Dalai Lama. And it's just how it is. You know, I could like it, I could not like it, but this is just the way it is. I've heard him talk about being the Dalai Lama at other times, and he said, this Dalai Lama must be the most difficult of all because the loss of the freedom of the Tibetan people, the loss of religion, the burning of the temples, the jailing of so many monks and nuns and torture, all these things that he hears now for 50 years that he has to carry. And I think about being the Dalai Lama with the phrase that Ramdas uses for his own stroke and difficulty, where he called it fierce grace, that in some way to be the Dalai Lama also is a very fierce thing to have to be at this time, to be the spiritual leader of, as a man who's really lost his country and want to care for it and be unable to. And yet, and yet he sits there with such presence and respect and dignity and joy and somehow has transformed this fierce suffering into compassion. It's not important what I feel. This is what I've been given. Somebody else said, well, in those questions, I'm a new mother. I have this newborn baby. Um, Do you have some advice on how to raise children? He said, hmm. You're asking the wrong person. I'm a monk. No children. He said, maybe if I was had a child for three hours, I could play. But then I wouldn't know what to do. You must ask someone else. I mean, such humility and such humor. That's that, this, this beautiful, gracious spirit. Each of us, like the Dalai Lama, has a mysterious destiny. You are each born, you know, as the Jones Lama or the Robertson Lama or the Wysinski Lama or the Gelati Lama or whatever it happens to be, whatever your name is. You were born into this strange incarnation and you have your particular destiny as he did. And so here we are in this human realm. We are human beings and this is the way things are. And the gift of mindfulness allows us to see with clarity instead of all these ideas and hopes and fears, this is the way things are. And to meet the joys and the sorrows, the gain and the loss, the praise and the blame with respect, like the rabbi taught those old monks, to treat ourselves with respect, to treat one another with respect, to take what you're given, like the Dalai Lama who's given this terribly fierce situation to take your 
mysterious destiny with its pleasure and its pain, with its measure of sorrows and its measure of beauty. And to meet this with a wise heart, to say, yes, I can practice with this too, with this incarnation, with your own body, treat it with respect, with your own heart and mind, with the community and family circumstances. And if you learn this, you will discover that freedom is possible wherever you are. It's really true. And people come on retreats, or you might even come to Monday night. I sort of see it as a reminder, like a booster shot or something like that, you know, especially the retreats. O nobly born, says the Buddha, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember your true nature. Remember that it's possible to be free in your heart, no matter what the circumstances of your life. So close your eyes just for a moment. You don't have to change how you're sitting. Just for a moment. And when you close your eyes, feel your own life, your body at this point, however many years old it is, with its you know, pleasures and its pains. And think about the circumstances of your life, where you live, particular people and place you live with where you work. And sense or imagine how in this body, in your place, with your family and work and community in this world, that within you is the freedom and ease of a Buddha. A sage is the great compassionate heart of an awakened one is your birthright as much as any other human being, that this is possible for you too. And you know this. I mean, yes, we all lose it and forget it, but you know this is possible. And to meditate is really to come back to this truth for yourself of respect, compassion, the spaciousness of heart that says, oh yes, this too, this whole human incarnation, to meet it as the Buddha, as the awakened one. So I close with a poem, then you can go out into this spring evening. This is from Laurie Anderson. In the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle, and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates and dragons. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand, and it takes months and months, and when the map is finished, they say a few prayers and erase it and throw the sand into the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. (laughs) 
And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was really being practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse. And when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. Oh, and one more thing, find the right road, because it's finally time to go home. So let's sit again just for a moment. So remember the rabbi in the woods and do a little experiment and try treating everyone around you, including yourself, with that kind of respect. See what happens. Blessings. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.